You are listening to Biotech Breakthroughs, a new podcast series from William Blair's Equity Research Group that explores the news and trends shaping the biotech industry. Hi, everyone. On today's episode of Biotech Breakthroughs, we welcome William Blair MedTech Analyst Margaret Kayser and Biotech Analyst Andy Shea. Andy and Margaret just wrapped up two calls about GLP-1 therapies, one with key opinion leaders in the space, and then Margaret hosted a follow-up call with management from one of the MedTech leaders in the space. So we're going to take the next 20 minutes to walk through key takeaways from these calls, including status of insulin replacement therapy, both now and in the future, how GLP-1 drugs are impacting, and I don't want to lead Margaret's commentary, but maybe not impacting diabetes. Whereas in contrast, Andy will talk about the GLP-1 class and how it's having a transformational impact on obesity and the management of obesity. And he's also going to touch upon some of the recent data coming out of the American Diabetes Association Conference. So with that, thank you for joining us. Margaret, maybe we start with you over the past six weeks. A lot of companies in the space have seen some pressure related to headlines surrounding GLP-1 therapy. I know that's one of the main reasons you decided to hold these recent calls. To start a conversation off, do you mind kind of touching on some of the uh, impact we've been seeing from these therapies in your world in medtech? Sure, absolutely. It was uh, it was fun because I was on vacation in Ireland, and of course, all these GLP-1 therapies start start hitting as I'm on vacation, so it's perfect timing. But yeah, medtech, you know, as a sector, has taken an absolute beating, to to put it bluntly. And really, it's it's kind of speculation that these drugs may be a cure and basically eliminate the need for certain procedures or device-based care. Obesity, you know, while definitely a key comorbidity to diseases like diabetes or sleep apnea or cardiovascular disease, you know, from our perspective, it's ultimately not the only contributor. But it's been really hard to figure out exactly how big of a contributor it is, how early you can take GLPs and, and really get an impact on patients. And there's been a lot of speculation with folks using small kind of 10, 20, 30 patient studies and extrapolating basically to markets that are 10 million, 20 million, or even a billion people in the case of sleep apnea. And then, you know, so, so we wanted to host the call because of that. Why diabetes? You know, I want to add that in there because diabetes is actually one of the sectors that has gotten hit the most in med tech. And ironically, these drugs have been around diabetes the longest. So the latest generation of GLP-1s were approved in 2017. We're talking six years of use in type 2 diabetes, and we really haven't seen an impact yet. So, you know, we wanted to bring on some clinicians that were endocrinologists and specialists within this area, as well as, you know, one of the leading companies that has had experience and can speak to, to you know, what's going on and, and what impact it's really seeing in the real world. Understood. And I know the stock volatility in med tech really got started with the select trial news. Andy, can you maybe give us an overview on that trial, when the news came out, what did it suggest, and what it could mean for the management of obesity? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tim. So this was a trial that was heavily interrogated before the readout. There's a lot of actually skepticism among the investment community heading into the study. But basically, it's a simple scientific question. The question is, by administering a drug that can essentially give you about a 15% weight loss in patients with obesity, but not type 2 diabetes, so you can really focusing in on the obesity element, whether that will lead to a cardiovascular advantage over non-intervention. 
And the study was powered to detect a 17% reduction in the risk. Now, just to give you guys a context, this is actually pretty conservative, given that a lot of the diabetes drugs, you know, for semaglutide, which is the drug in question, it showed about a 26%. So 17% is actually really, really conservative. But in the investment community, a lot of people were focusing on two things. One was really the trial was conducted during COVID. So there is a lot of uncertainty regarding people's activity, people's diet during that time that really increases that risk. To really make it worse, there's no comparable trials that have done have been conducted in the field before. So there's really no way to find previous studies to help you guide the design of its trial. So so that's kind of the backdrop of the select trial. So 17%, most people I would say expected numerically underneath that, but it came out to be 20%. So that was a huge positive surprise for the for the biopharma sector. So essentially it provides some sort of support for the GLP-1 class drug that, you know, if you administer that in obesity patients, you're going to get a clinically significant and statistically significant benefit in terms of cardioprotection. So that's kind of the backdrop of, of the study. And, and you know, in terms of the obesity market, which I focus on, I think the biggest question is really at reimbursement, right? So in the commercial space, we're probably seeing about 50% coverage now, if you move on to the government-sponsored agencies, the coverage is dismal. It's about 10%. And that has to do with a very, I would say, out-of-date law that basically prohibits Medicare from covering obesity drugs. And in order for coverage to probably you know, equilibrate or you know, kind of balance it out, it is important for you know, Congress to really enact something to counteract that prohibition to gain more coverage in the future. But I think maybe this trial, having a 20% reduction in cardiovascular outcomes, could encourage Congress to act more quickly and with more sense of urgency. And I know there are some kind of interesting takeaways from the select trial that were brought up on your KOL call. So maybe that's just a good place to start. Could maybe Margaret and then you, Andy, can you talk about some of the key takeaways you heard on your uh, KOL call you hosted with clinicians before we dive into the management call you hosted, Margaret? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the clinician call was was fascinating because the, the key question really becomes, one, can you cure diabetes, uh, which is kind of the best case scenario, trying to understand exactly what GLP-1s do as you take them, you know, what's the mechanism of action and really trying to dive deeper into, into the data set around clinical outcomes and trying to understand, you know, is there any proof across the last 20, 30 years of these drugs being on the market and, and whether there is, you know, some, some other kind of mechanism that's, that's going on that we, we don't know about today and maybe isn't shown kind of in the headline results that Andy had referenced earlier. So for us, you know, from a takeaway perspective, one, all three KOLs suggested there was no evidence of GLP-1s reversing kind of that natural progression of beta cell degradation in humans, which is one of the key drivers of type 2 diabetes. Two, and this is what was really 
interesting for me is that beta cell function, in their opinion, continues to decline over time regardless of therapy. So even as you're on a GLP-1, the, the speculation and the thought is that the diabetes continues to progress. So you're better managed, maybe you can delay it, but ultimately you will not cure diabetes, at least based on the data that, that we know today. And then the, the last piece was trying to really understand, you know, what a clinician that has been out there as a practicing clinician with adult T2s and has had these patients on therapy for, for years now, what are the real world you know, effects? How often are patients on therapy in a population where access theoretically should be broadly there because of the clinical benefits, the label, et cetera? The thing that really stuck with me was as much as everyone wants to think about access and people wanting to use the device 100% of the time, you know, let's say that it's free, Dr. Drecker, who is frankly one of the founders of GLP-1 Medicine, broadly his research kind of started this this industry and in, in diabetic, some of the key diabetic drugs uh, that are out there and used today, his comment was no matter how often and no matter what cardiometabolic drug is out there, Unfortunately, these aren't cancer drugs. These aren't drugs that you know you rely on day to day, or you know you're going to potentially die. Uh, in this case, you know this is something that you have to be motivated to to use. So it's 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 not the right way to compare it to a vitamin. But how often do we take vitamins every day as as prescribed? I should take it every day. I probably take it once a week, two times a week. Maybe I'll take it you know for two weeks or three weeks at a time, and then I'll stop taking it. And that's ultimately what they believe is the case, is no matter the cardiometabolic drug, adherence to that drug has been close to 40 or 50%. And Dr. Mora, who is a practicing physician, suggested that was relatively similar to what he's seeing in the field as well, is that patients can be on for six months and they can be off for six months. There have been some trials to, to also show the impact of that on patients. I took my vitamins this morning, Margaret, So, but I might be uh, I might You're be not an outlier. outlier. <laughs> Andy, some of what I heard on the KOL calls was a bit surprising in terms of the compliance issue. Can you just maybe drill into that a little bit and what we're seeing as patients have been on these drugs, you know, over one year? Yeah, yeah, I was I was frankly surprised by by the compliances, you know, I think the KOLs mentioned about 50% of the patients actually no longer stay on the therapy. And we cover more significant or you know more severe diseases out there, and yeah, I was I was surprised by by that, especially you know given the the, the health benefit. I you know it will be kind of interesting to see if the select trial could you know increase that compliance in the future. But that was definitely a surprise for me, especially for for me who is less knowledgeable in the uh, type two diabetes space. But in terms of what you know, uh, relevant to, to our coverage in terms of going into the details of the select trial, which we'll see later this fall, is really, you know, if you break down the cardiovascular components, it's basically death due to cardiovascular events, non-fatal heart attack, and non-fatal stroke, basically the relative contribution to the entire composite cardiovascular score, if you will, are all of them kind of evenly distributed or one driving the benefit of the entire composite endpoint, things like that. And I guess another question that people will start to ask, and this is really specific to the obesity space, is semaglutide is a monoagonist. And what I mean by that is like it activates this GLP-1 pathway. There's a drug approved and it's, it's terzepatide 
but it's a dual agonist. So it acts on not only the GLP, but also GIP. And so in terms of the weight loss, semaglutide probably gives you about 15%. Terzepatide gives you about 20% placebo-adjusted weight loss. So it remains to be seen that when the similar cardiovascular outcome study reads out in the future, whether we're going to see a number that is greater than 20% for terzepatide. Is this kind of more the better, or are we going to see a ceiling effect in terms of cardioprotective property? So that's a big question as we head into, I, I, you know, we, we don't know the timing for the terzepatide cardiovascular outcomes, but that's the question for the obesity field. Is more in terms of these receptor agonism better? And it seems like targeting GIP might have some improvements in durability effect as well. I know we've seen some early stage pipeline data coming out suggesting that's the case. Right. Another one of the key takeaways was discussing the GRADE study and, you know, beta cell function declines. Margaret, can you just kind of highlight again what you thought were the interesting, uh, you know, I guess, tidbits coming out regarding GRADE? Yeah, I mean, let's take a step back. There's there's a lot of reasons for type 2 diabetes, but ultimately a core reason that someone's got type 2 is because their beta cells have kind of degraded, which is what you referenced initially. Beta cells are found in the pancreas. They're responsible for producing and secreting insulin, which is ultimately kind of the hormone in your body that lowers blood sugar. So healthy human, let's call him Andy, not you, Tim, sorry. Andy, pretty healthy, right? <laughs> if Andy has some orange chicken, some white rice on an empty stomach, a lot of carbs, a lot of sugar that's going to be in his bloodstream, his pancreas, beta cells are going to release that insulin, lower the excess blood sugar, and he'd be back to normal. For type 2 diabetic, those beta cells have degraded. And even in early stage type 2, so if you just got diagnosed, the amount of output potentially coming out of those beta cells could be 50% or worse of normal function. So when you have that orange chicken and rice, there's less insulin, maybe 50% less insulin than you know healthy Andy over there to kind of eat up and, and get rid of that excess blood sugar. So it just kind of sits there in the bloodstream. Over time, that adds to blood vessel damage, kidney disease, high blood pressure, you know, so on and so forth. So improving and reversing that beta cell degradation is what's, is what's really important here. And the point is that the clinicians we're making is that there's been zero evidence in humans that that beta cell degradation that happens in diabetics stops you know, or reverses with the use of GLP-1. So you're not actually, quote unquote, curing the reason for diabetes, even though you may be helping slow the disease by lowering obesity or food intake. So having less orange chicken, rice, you know, ultimately means there's less insulin required to lower blood sugar, so less pressure on the beta cells. And then GLP-1s obviously kind of help the remaining beta cells produce more insulin. So there's a couple different features there. But the point is, until you actually uh, fix or reverse the degradation of the beta cells, you really won't reverse type 2 diabetes. And that's that's really kind of the, the key point, I think, that we came away from the call on is that's been the case. And so the question then becomes, you reference the GRADE study and its findings. What that found, and, and it was you know based on earlier stage GLP-1, so you know I'm cognizant of that, but they did look at things like alleroglutide, uh, glorcine, et cetera. What they found essentially was that even after patients started taking them, you did start to see an improvement in A1C after kind of 
really weeks of, of being on therapy in the first three, six months. But then after that, you started to see an increase in A1C. So that's the glucose measurement. And so what we're thinking, and that's, this is what the clinicians are thinking, is that even though the studies with 12-month outcomes are showing these A1C declines, and for GLP-1s, maybe that can be 12 months or 18 months, it ultimately suggests that GLPs are not changing beta cell function indefinitely. They're not reversing beta cell dysfunction. And so as a result, you know, you're more than likely going to continue to, to get worse and then ultimately need insulin. First off, you've never seen Andy dig into a bowl of ramen, so I'd suggest that (laughs) we we all have our weaknesses. But one of the things that came out of that call was the beta cell function was in already such a state of decline by time of diagnosis. And I know obesity rates amongst children and adults are staggering these days. So it doesn't seem like the wave, despite even with what looked to be very impressive obesity therapies, but still the wave of diabetes is is still approaching. I mean, there's a lot of components, and this is you know what some of the clinicians had gone through is is naming. You know, there's genetic components to this. You know, even all things being held equal, uh, there's certain types of foods that can be worse for you than others. Um, unfortunately, my dad has diabetes. He found out he can't have more than five strawberries because that could turn him off. Whereas for someone else, it could be five blueberries. But you won't really know unless you get get that feedback loop of personalized therapy versus that in general. But less orange chicken, that's uh, all the kids out there. Yeah, mom and mom, I will feed my kid less orange chicken just uh, for, for you know avoiding pre-diabetes. Andy, I know you have young children. Is this uh, also the case? Are you, are, are you, are you thinking about that more these days? I actually have the opposite problem. I I want them to eat more, so I have to bribe them with extremely unhealthy food, so that they can eat your main meal. So it's like, oh, I'll give you ice cream if you finish your meal. So obviously that works like thirty percent of the time. So I actually have the opposite problem. That's the real world impact of, of food crises in the U.S. <laughs> Tim, you know, you're, you're right in the sense, you know, there, there's 30 million, you know, diabetics here in the U.S., you know, but there's like 100 million or nearly 100 million pre-diabetics in the U.S. And so you've kind of got this, this unfortunate phenomenon of this market continuing to grow at a, at a rapid pace. And so, you know, part of what I tell people, and this is the uncertainty aspect, you don't know what the ultimate impact on the market is, but the funnel, you know, unfortunately is so, so large and, you know, Chinese food and Italian restaurants are some of the favorites. And so uh, it's just going to be hard to, to fight that trend. And let's talk about that TAM penetration. You know, Margaret, I know you cover some of the large medtech leaders. Where do you think we are in terms of that penetration? You know, we're hearing 100 million pre-diabetics. That's obviously a big number. So where do you think we are in terms of penetration? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the diabetes market is, is massive. Just if we do the 30 million diabetics in the U.S., you kind of add up the dollars and, and just let's do one population, which is CGM, which in our view should be used by all diabetics. That's a $50 billion market opportunity just in the U.S. today, you know, versus where we see the market, which is about $4 billion. So you're still, you know, 
less than 10% penetrated into that market. But globally, there's half a million diabetics. So one out of every 16 people globally is thought to have diabetes. So it's, it's unfortunately just very, very massive. You know, there's, there's two key markets when it comes to devices, continuous glucose monitoring, which I referenced earlier to us, you know, every diabetic should be on one of these technologies. You'll learn, you know, whether blueberries are bad for you, strawberries are bad for you. You'll definitely learn orange chicken is bad for you, orange juice, et cetera. So you'll learn a lot being on that therapy and you'll change your lifestyle. And that's the point, right? Is changing your lifestyle habits, you know, not just relying on, on one drug or one therapy to, to fix it. But in that scenario, you know, for type 1 diabetics, type 2 diabetics, you're probably about 50% penetrated in the U.S., a lot less outside the U.S. There's what's called a basal insulin market. In that scenario, you're about 15% penetrated or so uh, in the U.S. And then for total non-insulin users, the penetration is in the very low single digits. So, you know, for CGM specifically, a lot of opportunity. And then on the, you know, insulin pump side, uh, it's a smaller market in the sense that today, it's being used for insulin users alone. But even in that scenario, you know, we're talking about a population that is somewhere around four or five million. And I add basal users on there. That probably gets me to about eight or nine million patients just in the U.S. You know, but even of that initial type one market alone. So let's put type two to the side. Type one is not impacted by GLP-1s at all. In that scenario, the market's about a third or so penetrated. So there's still a lot of opportunity there. True. And even with some of the discussion from the KOLs talking about compliance and access that was really hammered home in your call, I mean, we're still seeing major, major numbers coming out of the GLP-1 products. I mean, these are these are a force in the pharma industry. Andy, do you have any sense of where the growth is uh, going to continue? Or, you know, I know the recent CV data is pretty impressive. Yeah. So, you know, beyond obesity, I think, you know, there's other opportunities out there, you know, sleep apnea, like Margaret said earlier, that's, that's another opportunity from a therapeutic standpoint. One thing that is interesting, though, very, very interesting. There's a company running a trial asking the question whether semaglutide could have an effect on Alzheimer's disease. So obviously, that's a high risk, high reward study. So everybody is, you know, paying a lot of attention to that. But yeah, but that trial might read out in a couple of years. And this might be completely different vertical than what we're used to in terms of GLP-1, right? Crossing the chasm from a metabolic disease agent to perhaps neurology. So, so there's a lot of optionality out there. Some are more, I would say, logical a logical leap than others. But but yeah, there's a lot out there. And I would say also there's a lot of press coverage regarding its potential in terms of controlling addiction. There's some anecdotal evidence suggesting that cigarette craving or alcohol craving decreases when you're on these drugs. Actually, there's a really funny study looking at kind of alcoholic monkeys because this is kind of how they want as, to... I was curious where you were going to go there, Andy. <laughs> yeah. I, I take offense to this, Andy. I take offense to this already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's co-red, co-red from an HR perspective. So, and, and, and they basically got these monkeys and they administered GLP-1 and they saw the desire of wanting to get alcohol or alcoholic beverages reduce over time. So there's, while the 
clinical validation is not super robust, but we we do see not only anecdotal evidence from humans, but also some you know clinical studies from non-human primates as well. That's really interesting, especially the neuro connection. You know, I know that metformin Alzheimer's study was really interesting a couple of years ago. We might have to get Miles on to our uh, Alzheimer's expert to uh, talk about this at a, on another podcast. With that, is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you definitely wanted to dig into? You know, we did talk about the ADA data to some extent, but are we missing anything? Is there anything that maybe investors are coming in and asking uh, both you, know, you, Margaret, and Andy that uh, we haven't touched on? I'll start. You know, there there was even in the last week. So we held our kind of GLP one panel call, and then I think one or two days later, you know, this feels like daily daily updates on this stuff. But there was a, a publication in a, in a New England Journal of Medicine that kind of talked to the use of uh, semaglutide in early, you know, recently di- diagnosed type one diabetes, and that just you know really impacted the insulin pump companies. And it's kind of in the name, right? So these guys deliver insulin, and so if you're going to threaten potentially the large kind of market and the core market of type one, now not only are we talking type two, which is what GLPs normally are, are considered a, at risk. Now you're talking about where 80, 90 plus percent of the patients come from on type one. And I think there was a little bit of, of miscommunication around that. So personally, I would touch on it a little bit. GLPs have been talked about you know, and, and used and trialed, frankly, in type one diabetes for, for quite a long time, and particularly around early stage you know, type one diabetics, because there is some beta cell function left for type ones. And so the, the thought process is if you use a GLP-1, can you delay or you know, eliminate type 1 diabetes? And unfortunately, you know, when we had Dr. Trang Lee, who's a medical director from one of the largest diabetic companies in medical technology, she said she actually wasn't surprised by the results at all because it kind of happened during what's called this honeymoon phase of type 1, which diabetes honeymoon doesn't really go together. But in a lot of cases for type 1 patients, there's a period after diagnosis where these patients and diabetics experience a point where they're asymptomatic. So the existing beta cells that are left function normally. They even produce enough insulin for well-controlled blood glucose management. And so, you know, seeing these patients that were in this study basically come off insulin wasn't surprising because that's what she would have seen as a practicing clinician during this honeymoon period. Over time, as we get more data, we should start to see things even out. And unfortunately for these patients, type 1 is an autoimmune disorder. So there's really nothing that GLP-1s have shown to be found to halt that autoimmune process. Process and response in type 1s. So for us, not something that we view as a risk for insulin pumps, but I think people are just so jumpy these days of what don't I know, what don't I understand, what could threaten this market. So that was one thing that's been mentioned a lot. And it definitely seems like the takeaways included, you know, what we're seeing from the studies are going to be potentially a bit different when we get real world data after these therapies have been on the market or you know, after they've been broadly used for uh, longer periods of time. And again, in that scenario, it was another 10 patients. So, you know, I kind of started the discussion by saying people are extrapolating these 10 patient studies over a short period of time and saying, here's what's going to happen. And unfortunately, things just don't work that way in medicine, as, as you guys know. Understood, understood. Well, Andy and Margaret, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you about this interesting subject. And, you know, thank you so much for uh, your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks for hosting.
going to have some orange chicken. No problem. Let's do this again soon. For more, head to williamblair.com slash thinking, uh, where you can browse our library of white papers, market updates, webinars, and all these other resources designed to provide actionable intelligence for emerging opportunities. If you like what you heard, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Copyright 2023, William Blair and Company, LLC. William Blair and Ardox are registered trademarks of William Blair and Company, LLC. As used on this podcast, William Blair refers to William Blair and Company, LLC, William Blair Investment Management, LLC, and affiliates. For more information about William Blair, go to www.williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended as investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of an investor's objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are subject to change over time as market and other factors evolve.